I always thought of Silicon Valley Bank as a community bank. There was an understanding. The reason that they became successful was they provided an amazing service to technology companies. We all understood that if, when I was a venture capitalist, when our portfolio companies deposited their money with Silicon Valley Bank, meant they were more likely to be able to get loans and other services than they would from major banks. And that if everyone played, everyone got a better shake. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everybody. I'm Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I know a lot of you, maybe not all of you, but it's wonderful to be in this space together. I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Andy Rockliffe. Andy is executive chair at Wealthfront. He's also co-founder. He previously served as president and CEO. He is also co-founder of Benchmark Capital, where he was a general partner for many years. He's a lecturer at Stanford Business School, which is where we originally crossed paths. Andy, I think that was about 20 years ago, which is weird since I'm only 35, but I know. (laughs) Andy is also a very close, indispensable mentor to me. He is responsible in a very direct way for all of us being here today. He was the lead investor in the first round of seed capital that Breakline raised, which was in 2017 and continues to be an ongoing source of support, mentorship, and inspiration for me. So, Andy Rackliff, thank you so much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure, Bethany. Delighted to be with you. So, folks, we're going to kick it off, and Andy and I have aligned on a series of questions we're going to focus the conversation on SVB and some of the knock-on effects that might be possible as a result of the unfolding events before us. And if we have time, we'll open it up to a couple of questions from all of you as well. We've got 30 minutes today, so we're going to go straight at it and work together at a fast clip. So Andy, I want to just level set as we start the conversation. Last Wednesday, Silicon Valley Bank was considered healthy. 24 hours later, depositors tried to withdraw $42 billion. Can you talk to us about what caused this very abrupt turn of events? Sure. Let me say up front, though, that, Bethany, I'm not an expert on banking, but I can tell you what I have come to understand thus far, okay? so That sounds great. And I'll speak in very round numbers. First of all, one has to remember that a company's balance sheet, one's assets equal their liabilities plus their equity. This is a really important thing. For a bank, Their liabilities are primarily deposits. They owe you that money. They owe their depositors that money. They use those deposits to make loans. Those are their assets. If they can't make loans and have excess money laying around, they buy bonds. When you buy a bond, in effect, you're loaning someone money. So 
uh, Silicon Valley Bank took the deposits and they took the deposits plus the equity that they had built up over the years from earning profits. And they turned those into loans and the purchase of bonds. So their assets were well in excess of their liabilities. That was represented by the book value of their equity. And that had grown significantly over the years because Silicon Valley Bank was a very profitable bank. So it's very important to understand that their assets were well in excess of their liabilities or their deposits. Now, a good treasurer at a bank aligns the duration of their assets and their liabilities. If you owe money in the short term to someone, then you don't want assets that are long-term in nature. You want to match those durations. Banks don't keep all of the money that you have in deposit at the bank because if they did, they couldn't make any money. They have to lend it out or buy bonds on which they earn an interest rate, hopefully in excess of the interest rate that they pay the depositors. So banks only have to keep approximately 5% of the deposits in cash that can help customers with withdrawals or checks or payments, whatever is necessary for day-to-day transactions. Well, Silicon Valley Bank made a monstrous mistake, not just a mistake, but a monstrous mistake. And that was to take a portion of their deposits and invested in 10 and 30-year bonds. Well, that doesn't match the duration of the needs of their depositors. They did this in a desire to earn higher rates because typically, and not always, longer-term bonds pay higher interest rates than shorter-term bonds. So most banks, if they don't make loans, put the money in something extremely safe, like a short-term treasury bill. The problem with the short-term treasury bill is they don't pay much in interest. Now, when interest rates go up, the price of bonds go down. That's because a bond pays a fixed coupon, typically. If you want to make the yield on the bond increase, the value of the bond has to decrease. If the numerator stays constant, the coupon, then the only way to get the rate to go up is to decrease the denominator. The longer term the bond, the more the bond has to decrease in value in order for the interest rate to change. So when rates started to go up six months ago, the value of the long-term bonds that they purchased started to go down. should have unwound the trade as soon as they learned the Fed was going to start to raise interest rates and take a loss then. They didn't. They held on. They held on for another six months. They started to liquidate that portfolio on Wednesday and announced that they had taken a $1.8 billion loss on that portfolio. Now, to put things into perspective, $1.8 billion is only approximately 1% of their total assets. It shouldn't have made a difference. But a few venture capitalists went public about the fact that they had told their portfolio companies to withdraw all of their cash. Now, when everyone runs to withdraw their cash, becomes a bank run. And as I said before, banks typically don't keep more than 5% of their deposits, which I think were $150 million. So 5% of that 
is only seven and a half billion dollars on hand. So if you try to withdraw 42 billion and there's only seven and a half on hand, something bad happens. So in that case, on Thursday, so many people tried to withdraw that on Friday, the FDIC had to step in to stop the bank run. The FDIC is in the business of protecting depositors. Now, I was never worried about people getting all of their deposits back because, as I said earlier, the amount of the assets, even net of the decreases due to the higher interest rates, were well in excess of the value of the deposits. So the money was going to get back. But unfortunately, the media and social media incorrectly reported that this was either a tech issue, it had nothing to do with tech, or a medium-sized bank issue. It had nothing to do with being a medium-sized bank. It had to do with unbelievably stupid decision on the part of the treasurer of one bank to buy these long-term bonds and hold on to them. Now, once this was reported, people started thinking, well, every tech-related bank or every medium-sized bank is in trouble. That could have caused a run on all of those banks as well. Unfortunately, over the weekend, the Fed announced that it will loan banks the money up to the amount they have invested in loans and bonds so that if they need immediate liquidity for depositors, they'll get immediate liquidity. That stopped the run on this. Yeah. Boxpayers won't take any losses because there's more than enough value in these assets to pay the Federal Reserve. Right. And that's one reason why it's not technically a bailout. But Andy, I wanted to... You just a bailout is when you bail out the equity holders. Right. And unfortunately, the equity holders were wiped out at Silicon Valley. Yeah. Andy, you covered a lot of ground and I wanted to just go back and double click on a few things. Sure. Lots of people knew, even just by nature of their name, that Silicon Valley Bank had a sector focus on tech and venture capital. But you talked about the power that a small number of venture capitalists had to sort of spur this bank run. And I think that that's really interesting because it was a clientele concentration risk that was sort of unique to Silicon Valley Bank. I was listening to a podcast and someone said that maybe 20 venture capitalists caused the bank run. And so some people describe this dynamic as really similar to the broker deposit risk that regulators actually ask banks to break up. This is when one actor can make a decision on behalf of lots and lots of account holders. And they were saying it's sort of a similar analogy to that clientele concentration risk. Do you feel like as you look at what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, do you think that that was a factor here in the bank run? Well, clearly a few venture capitalists played an important role and they've been quiet about it. I don't think it would have been nearly as bad as being public. I think Peter Thiel did an unbelievable disservice to the community. I always thought of Silicon Valley Bank as a community bank. There was an understanding. The reason that they became successful was they provided an amazing service to technology companies. We all understood that if, when I was a venture capitalist, when our portfolio companies deposited their money with Silicon Valley Bank, meant they were more likely to be able to get loans and other services and they would from major banks. And that if everyone played, everyone got a better shake. So 
It was a real community mentality. Unfortunately, the newer venture capitalists to to this community don't care about the community and were willing to blow it all up. That's an opinion. It's not a fact. Yeah. I shared your view that it was a community bank. I really, Breakline was a customer of Silicon Valley Bank, and I absolutely felt that they went above and beyond for small businesses like us. So you talked about the possibility of contagion in your explanation of what happened. And contagion was one of the reasons why the FDIC stepped in and insured 100% of deposits rather than just up to the $250,000 level that they're actually responsible for. Can you talk about systemic risk? Did you feel like there was systemic risk to allowing Silicon Valley Bank to fully collapse or not? I don't think so. The FDIC doesn't just provide insurance for up to $250,000 per account. They're a regulator that has a mission of protecting depositors. So when they stepped in, it was not to give $250,000 to each depositor. It was to make sure that the depositors got all of their money back. That is their mission. As a matter of fact, one of the former chairs of the FDIC is on the advisory board of WealthFund. So three regulators of banks, there are two major ones, the Office of the Controller of the Currency or the OCC and the FDIC. So they go out of their way to make sure that depositors are protected. And that's why the FDIC jumped in on Friday. The Fed actually provided the loan, the backstop loan, to stop the run on the banks. Had they not, very likely could have moved. I mean, it would have very unfairly affected banks like First Republic, other mid-sized banks who, again, had assets well excess of their deposits, but becomes an emotional issue and not a rational issue. So I think that that offer of the loan from the Fed was necessary to get people out of the run mentality. Yeah. And just to illustrate what you mean, if depositors had not been made whole for Silicon Valley Bank, it could have indicated to depositors at other mid-sized banks like First Republic or others that their deposits weren't safe. And in fact, they could evaporate overnight. And a rational person might have looked at that possibility and said, I'm going to move my money to JP Morgan now. And if everyone moves their money to one of the top three banks over time, we end up with a much less robust banking system than the one that we have now. Exactly. And by the way, companies will be served much more poorly because big banks do not care about small companies. I can attest to that. (laughs) It's (laughs) It's absolutely terrible. So back to the FDIC example, I'm not as well versed in banking regulations as I am securities regulations. At Wealthfront, we enable people, we offer an automated portfolio consists of a diverse group of index funds, we at a very low cost in a very tax efficient manner. We allow you to buy stocks on the platform, but not we're not promoting day trading, we're promoting long-term investing. And we offer a cash account that offers $2 million of FDIC insurance, not 250,000 because we spread it among partner banks. We pay 4.05% on that. 
So we offer a higher rate than banks. So we basically give you more value either in the form of a higher rate or lower fees or more tax benefits than you can get elsewhere. But we started, we're regulated by the SEC, by FINRA, which regulates brokerage firms. Now, there is an analogous regulator in the brokerage industry to the FDIC, and it's called the SIPC, the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. They insure brokerage accounts up to $250,000. But here's an interesting fact. When a brokerage firm goes bankrupt, the SIPC steps in to make sure the depositors get all their money back. In only 0.3% of all brokerage bankruptcies did depositors not get all of their money. So it is a, unfortunately, ignorance drives this and people think, oh my God, I'm going to lose all my money. It's almost impossible to lose your money at a brokerage firm or a bank. Thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to just, you know, as you were describing Wealthfront, you're you're sort of providing the rationale for why we need this very robust system of financial services around us. Can you say a little bit more about those benefits to individual depositors, to startups and other companies? Why is this so important? Why don't we want everyone to run toward the top three or five banks in the country? Well, they charge exceptionally high fees. The people at at J.P. Morgan Chase don't like me because I wrote a blog (laughs) post that just repeated something that Jamie Dimon, who's a wonderful human being who I know personally, but something that he said in an analyst call. When interest rates were on their way down, typically banks make less money when rates are down and they make more money when rates are up. So an analyst asked Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, what are you going to do if interest rates go down? This was in 2018. And he raised fees without stopping for a moment. Well, I repeated this as a reason why people should not, individuals should not keep their money at J.P. Morgan Bank because the bank is run for the benefit of J.P. Morgan Bank they could care less about their depositors. The mission statement at Wealthfront is to create a financial system that favors individuals, not institutions. It's just a very different point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. It's amazing to feel like you're getting personalized attention and wisdom and insights rather than feeling like one of a number. Again, hey. we're, not a, we're not a bank. Wealthfront, I know. A bank. Wealth, Wealthfront is not a bank. We partner with banks to provide many of the services that banks provide, but you can make a a profit. You can grow your business without trying to take advantage of your customers. Unfortunately, that is not the way that the largest banks have been conditioned. That's right. And I think one thing that's so sad here about Silicon Valley Bank is they really did put a premium on that service and on on those relationships. Andy, I'd love your view, you know, just as as somebody who's been in the space for a long time, will Silicon Valley Bank's collapse exacerbate the wave of layoffs that we've been seeing, particularly in the tech sector over the last six to 12 months? And will it have any meaningful impact on the job market in the U.S. in general? Or or Why, Why would you think that it would increase layoffs? 
Well, you know, I think in the immediate term, you talked about a lot of startups being very scared about having access to their liquid assets, their cash, which they need for stuff like payroll. You know, so could this turn into a reason why people would downsize, founders and CEOs and executive teams would downsize or not? Is it just not a meaningful factor in in the constellation of things to think about? I think had people not been able to get to their deposits, perhaps yeah. that could have been the case, but that is forestalled. Right. Uh, Silicon Valley, I think, is an important provider of financing through something with, that's known as venture debt, yeah. which is something that companies that are a little more mature use as an alternative to equity because it's less expensive from a cost of capital standpoint. The fact that they'll go away does not mean that the venture debt market will go away, but it will become less price competitive. And so companies will have to pay a higher price for their capital. Could that mean some layoffs? I, I would be surprised if that led to layoffs. It might lead to a little bit slower growth going yeah. forward. But I think that it represents a very small percentage of the overall funding of tech companies. So I, I wouldn't expect that. Yeah. Just with our little microcosm and breakline, we have one company right now that was anticipating putting out an offer this week. They're still going to make the offer. It's just going to take them a couple of days because they're still sorting out some of the mechanics of moving their cash around. So that's what we're seeing from our lens. Hey, Andy, related question. Does Silicon Valley Bank's collapse? I mean, this bank had a very particular orientation and risk tolerance for startups that was quite different than some of the very large banks in the U.S. Does their collapse have any impact on startups trying to raise another round of capital? I don't think so. No. Again, I think it will make it more challenging if you want to get an accounts receivable line or if you want a line of credit or all sorts of things that represent friction in one's business. But I do not think it will have much effect business. Okay. It just makes life more difficult. Right. Andy, before we got on the line, we surfaced some questions from our breakliners. I'm going to ask a related one now, which is from your perspective as a former venture capitalist, as an entrepreneur, you still do invest in companies and, and people that are building things that you care about. Do you think that the environment is changing more broadly apart from Silicon Valley Bank in terms of what is now considered a fundable and investable business? And if so, how has it changed? I don't think it's changed all that much. Hmm. But momentum investing has taken over more later stage investing. But at the earlier stage, uh, people are still looking for compelling entrepreneurs with insights yeah. about, about a change in the world, because without change, there's seldom opportunity. And I don't think that that's effective, at least. I think that. I and people of my age bemoan the fact that momentum investing has become more popular in late-stage venture investing, but I don't see much in the way of change in early-stage venture And can you just describe for this audience the difference between the two, momentum and early-stage? It's all compared momentum investing to fundamental investing. So fundamental investing is based on the fundamentals of the business. How is it doing? What are its, what's the growth rate? What's the profitability? What's the quality of the earnings? Things of that sort. They're very analogous to the way people used to 
evaluate public companies. Momentum investing is based the companies with the greatest momentum attract the most capital. And you don't worry about the quality of the revenue or the profitability of the business, that that will all get solved with momentum. That the faster the growth, the more attractive the business. And now companies will just figure out all of those other issues later on. So people are attracted to heat. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always lead to the best businesses. I think that the biggest counterexample of momentum investing working is WeWork. Yeah. Because it was growing so quickly, it attracted an enormous amount of capital until it didn't. So it's sort of like a game of musical chairs that momentum works. Momentum investing works until it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then you want to be the last person without a chair in the game of musical chairs. Okay, Andy, we've got two minutes left. I'm going to try to do a lightning round of three questions. Rachel, RLM Rachel is asking, strictly for your opinion only, not a guarantee. But in this case, did guaranteeing deposits set a precedent that would encourage VCs or tech companies working with banks to increase risky behavior? No. Like, was it? No. Because I don't think companies ever even thought about riskiness of their deposits. I mean, we told companies, don't try to make money on your deposits because that's uh, cash is oxygen and oxygen is life. So you want to make sure that the deposits were there. We assumed that they were. So the guarantee of the deposit just sort of enforces what we always thought it would be. So no, the fact that it's guaranteed would not lead us to take any more risk. Yep. And then my teammate Brandon is saying, you mentioned that this SVB collapse was due to poor decisions of a few people and had less to do with systemic. Specific only to Silicon Valley Bank. Yes. He's asking, do you see any significant regulations coming down the pike over the next few months to prevent this from happening again? Well, that would require Congress to work in a bipartisan nature. (laughs) When pigs fly. Andy, last question is about Wealthfront, because I think sometimes I think that there might be imposter syndrome related to signing up for an account with Wealthfront. Like, am I the right person? Do I have enough money? Will Wealthfront care about me? Do I like, is this meant for me or is this meant for other people who have tons and tons of cash laying around? Can you talk to us about who your customer is and, you know, how we should be thinking about whether or not we could be a Wealthfront customer too? Sure. Well, what we have done is we have taken services that were traditionally only available to people who are very wealthy, required a very high minimums. And we have delivered them extremely low cost and at extremely low account sizes. So for example, by automating everything and only delivering our financial services through software, we're able to take all of the cost out of the system so we can offer more of the value to our clients. So we can build a financial system that favors individuals and not the institutions. So for example, our cash account, which offers a 4.05% interest rate, it's fully liquid, $2 million of FDIC insurance. You can get an ATM card on that with 19,000 ATMs that you can access for free. You can even do Venmo from it or pay your bills from it. The minimum on that account is $1. Our automated investment account, which offers that diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds in a very tax-efficient manner, 
that is a $500 minimum, and the fee that you pay is only a quarter of a percent. A typical wealth manager might have a minimum of a million to $5 million and charge 1%. So it's a fraction of the fee. And tax savings that we generate through this arcane thing called tax loss harvesting pays for our fee eight times over on average. We allow you to borrow money and get the money the next day, which is a lot easier. You don't have to fill out a lot of forms like you do with a home equity loan. And the cost of that loan is a fraction of what a major bank is going to charge you for that. And then we offer the ability to buy individual stocks with no commissions, but we also don't take payment for order flow like Robinhood. Uh, And the minimum on that service is a dollar and that is does not encourage people to trade, but we offer stocks up in collections like Spotify playlists as a way to discover what to invest in in a diversified fashion. So if you don't think that you really understand that very well, we uh, basically give you a shortcut to smarter investing. So when Andy was co-founding this company and over time, he has described their mission to me as democratizing the opportunity for wealth creation. So Andy, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for joining us here today. Such a pleasure to have you and so appreciate the insights and opinions that you shared. And to all of you, I hope you have a great afternoon, great evening. Thank you so much, Andy, for joining us. My pleasure. Take care, everybody. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of The Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.